So this week um, is probably a little bit different. I'm going to teach, just start teaching the lesson on repentance instead of doing the early devotional, because the lesson on repentance really is kind of three lessons. Um, a big piece of it is the lesson on godly sorrow, which, um, so you can just think of that as the devotional time, because we'll start with the lesson on godly sorrow and spend a lot of time in that, and then talk more about repentance as we go on. Um, so, <clears throat> we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 for most of our time. We might hop around a little bit, but most of our time will be in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you want to turn there, um, that would be good. As you're turning there, think about a sin that you've had to battle with. Um, maybe it's anger. Uh, contentment, lust. How did you respond to a knowledge of that sin in your life? Did someone have to bring it up to you? Um, did you recognize it? Did you feel um, guilt potentially after you first sinned? Once you realized it, were you like, well, I can't do that anymore, and then never did it again? Yeah? No? No. <laughs> um, for me, you know, we have this phrase that I kind of hate in churches called like a besetting sin. Um, but if I'm going to use it anyway, um, for me, I think my besetting sin, the one that I struggle with that rears its ugly head in different ways has been contentment most of my life. Um, and just when I think I have it nailed, it manifests itself in a different way. Um, and, but the root is still there, not trusting God's sovereignty with exactly where he has me in, his life, in my life. Um, that shows up. And so it can be discouraging. Um, as recently as last week or the week before, my gracious wife brought to me a way that a lack of contentment had been manifesting itself that I didn't see. Um, thank God for our wives. Um, because... It was a blind spot. Um, she's like, this is the same thing you've been battling our entire marriage. And I'm like, you're right. And I didn't see that it was showing itself that way. Um, so what's the response? Uh, that's really what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about how do you respond to that in a way that glorifies God and helps move us in a direction of holiness. Um, if you're in my small group, you hear this a lot, but I want a, this phrase to become a part of your standard vocabulary. When you see sin, the first thing I want you to think is, what does repentance look like? Um, and in a detailed way, like what does repentance look like? And so we're going to look today at nine marks of godly repentance. Um, this is a scenario in 2 Corinthians where Paul... Um, confronted the church at Corinth, and we'll talk about kind of the details in a minute, but Paul confronted the church at Corinth, and in this he's encouraging them because he sees repentance in their life, and he gives them marks of repentance that he sees and says, hey, this is, this is why I know you guys have been repentant of that sin. Um, and so it's kind of a looking back and saying, hey, this is how you know repentance is in your life. So in the scenario I talked about earlier with contentment, like it's great for me to say, okay, I need to turn from this sin. But as time moves on, how do I know I turn from this sin well? And how do I know that this is repentance and not just, you know, 
sorry I got caught type of thing. Um, and so I hold different build le lessons with different tightnesses. Like there's lessons, the first two lessons that Omri taught, um, I think are some of the most foundational best lessons you can learn in almost anywhere um, when we talk about the God's transformation of man. Um, I think that's foundational to just even the way we approach scripture. The lesson Josh taught on Bible reading, same thing, a way to position yourself under God's word. Um, at the end of build this year, I'm going to teach a biblical decision making. Um, that's a lesson that rings in my ears regularly um, in just how do I approach decisions. This lesson has a unique place in my mind. I believe this lesson is one that we should have nearly memorized. I think it should be a crib sheet in our Bibles of, hey, these are some marks that I want to look at. I think when you, like I said, we're going to spend a lot of time on godly sorrow. When you think about the word sorry, what we talk about with respect to godly sorrow should ring in your head. Um, sorry is a it's just a watered-down word these days. And godly sorrow um, is, is kind of a completely different thing. And so I, I think it, it's important for us to define sorry well. And that's where we're going to start. So let's turn to 2 Corinthians 7. You're probably already there. Let me give you a little bit of a timeline as to where we're at. Um, Paul was in Corinth for 18 months on his second missionary journey. Contrast that with Thessalonians, where he was there for a few weeks. Um, there's a very different relationship with the people in Corinth. Um, he ended his second missionary journey and began his third and settled in Ephesus. Um, he wrote his first letter addressing sin issues, and he references that in 1 Corinthians 5, but that was lost. Um, so really, 1 Corinthians should be 2 Corinthians, 3 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is 4 Corinthians, but obviously two of those aren't inspired, so here we have 1 and 2 Corinthians. Um, so the Corinthians asked Paul some clarifying lesson, le questions as a follow-up to the first letter, and that's what we know as 1 Corinthians is his answer to those questions. Um, Paul traveled from Corinth to Ephesus to Corinth from Ephesus for a painful visit, we see that at the beginning of this book, um, and confronted false teachers. And they didn't stand with Paul before those false teachers. So kind of think about that scenario. Paul spent 18 months with these people. He saw, you know, he probably married people. He saw people die. He had intimate relationship with these people. He taught them the gospel. He shepherded them through that for 18 months. And then someone else came into the church and started spreading falsehoods about Christ, about what Paul had taught. And they didn't stand with Paul. Um, this had to have been heartbreaking for him. Um, and he was grieved. And we hear about that, um, some even in this chapter. But then Titus went back um, and gave Paul a report of how the church at Corinth had repented of this. And this is Paul's follow-up to that report. And so 2 Corinthians is, is his fourth letter to the church at Corinth, his second inspired letter. And there's some very important things we can learn about repentance from this letter. And so let's read 2 Corinthians. I'm going to start in verse 5 and go through 13. Uh, chapter 7. For even when we came into Macedonia, 
Our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Think about that. He, he confronted the false teachers, and they stood with the false teachers, and yet now they had zeal for him. And so there was definitely something that changed there. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you for the, in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. So what was the sin? Um, the Corinthians had abandoned their pastor and apostle when he confronted the false teachers before them. When Paul wrote the third, that third letter delivered by Titus, confronting them for abandoning him, there was not yet at that time any evidence of repentance. It wasn't until Titus returned that Paul learned the effect of his words in the lost third letter. And it caused them sorrow. There were attitudes that Titus could discernibly see and measure in them that indicated they were repentant. The relational strife um, was mending. And so here's a description of what that looked like. These aren't broad generalities. He actually goes into detail. And so um, as you look at your handout, I think you have eight marks of godly repentance in the first section there. Um, the first mark is godly sorrow. And I've actually got five ways that godly sorrow acts for the repentant sinner. Um, so that's sermon one of three um, this morning. So I'm sure as you noted, I'm sure you noticed as I read, the word sorrow or sorrowful kept popping up. Um, it shows up eight times just in the, the few verses from 8 to 11. Um, so it seems like sorrow is very important and very, on Paul, very much on Paul's mind as he's writing this letter. Um, let's look at that section where he talks about sorrow in detail one more time. I'm going to read it again and just think about the word sorrow as I read it. But God who com I'm sorry in verse 6. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. And here comes the part with sorrow all over the place. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that this letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, 
but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Okay, so five ways sorrow acts for the repentant sinner. And those come out of those verses I just read the second time. The first way, godly sorrow points to repentance. Look at verse 9. Genuine repentance will inevitably involve sorrow. It must. And note the extremes in verse 7. Um, when genuine, genuine repentance is found, rejoice and mournful and sorrowful are words. Um, there is sorrow to rejoice over. That seems counterintuitive, um, but there is such a thing as sorrow that can be rejoiced over. Notice that sorrow is not the goal. Um, or the destination, it's repentance. I love going to San Diego. I think it's like something we're required to as Arizona um, residents that we have to go to San Diego at least once a year during the summer. Um, to get there, you take I-8. Um, I-8 is not vacation. Um, I-8 is the path to vacation. I-8 is tough. Um, it's not a very fun drive. Um, sorrow is the path to repentance. You have to get there. You have to use it to get there. And then you get the beach. Um, number two, godly sorrow does not act like guilt. Um, again in verse 9, um, guilt is not godly sorrow. But I think we get these two mixed up. Uh, feeling guilty is being aware of your guilt. We know we did something wrong. We feel guilt. You can feel guilt to the point of sorrow, but not have godly sorrow. Um, Judas was sorrowful, but he wasn't repentant. If you're truly repentant, you will be sorrowful. Um, Peter's a great example. So let's turn and look at Peter. Um, we'll be in Luke 22 looking at this. Let's start in verse 54. Having arrested him, Jesus, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. And Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out 
and wept bitterly. We know that verse 2 talks about godly sorrow and not guilt because we see how Peter was repentant of this in the rest of his life and stood for his faith to the point of becoming a martyr. That was a very different man than the man that denied Jesus three times. Um, But it doesn't talk about anything in this passage other than he went out and wept bitterly. He was broken over his sin. This requires a right view of our sin. So let's go to 2 Samuel. This might be, I hate to say this because don't we say this all the time, this might be one of my favorite sections of scripture. I just think Nathan's kind of a man when he confronts David. Um, So 2 Samuel 12, we'll read the first 13 verses. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he, brought, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children, and it would eat his bread and drink his cup and lie in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. And now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more of these things. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your own, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you and your own household. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin, and you shall not die. Those words that David said in his repentance is boiled down to five biting words when he had full knowledge of his sin, saw it on display, and recognized, um, really had true sorrow. I have sinned against Yahweh. I believe David felt guilt between the time he... um, struck down Uriah in this passage. Um, but when it was on, put on display by Nathan, he felt sorrow, and it was sorrow under repentance. And he said, I have sinned against Yahweh. He saw his sin clearly and felt sorrow under repentance. And that is a sorrow God is pleased with. 
That is a sorrow that is according to the will of God. It's a sorrow that you experience on the way to genuine repentance. The goal is not to merely be sad when you have sinned. The goal is repentance, and you have to be sorrowful on the way there. The third way godly sorrow acts for the repentant sinner is godly sorrow has no loss. When the world is sorrowful, it is usually because it lost something it loves. But God's sorrow, the sorrow of repentance, suffers no loss. Um, Through us, in this passage, back in 2 Corinthians, puts the emphasis on the horizontal concern Paul has. When a believer repents, it is an evidence of loss. It is not evidence of loss at all. Um, 7.9 at the beginning says rejoicing, and then later says no loss. Yet where there is joy and no loss, there is sorrow. The only way they would have suffered loss is if they had not repented. And let's go back to 2 Corinthians 7.10 and just read it again. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. The repentant believer has no regrets in turning from his sin. Godly sorrow looks at your sin through God's eyes. You do not see your sin as something you miss or long for. There are no good old days to the believer and the repenter. Um, There's no such thing as buyer's remorse. There's no such thing as renter's remorse. Or repenter's remorse? Renter. What? I <laughs> guess I read past the P in that word on um, repenter's remorse. Um, in true repentance, you have only gained. I think to be able to do this, you, you know, if we were talking about the steps to repentance, which is a little bit of a different lesson, I think one of the most significant steps to repentance is to look at your sin through God's eyes, to go to God's word and see what your sin looks like to him. Um, If you have that besetting sin, I would encourage you to do a study, a word study, throughout Scripture on what that sin looks like to God. If it's contentment, there's a lot of Scripture that talks about that. If it's lust, if it's anger, it won't take you, like, it'll take you a lot of time to do it. But then you have a crib sheet that says, hey, this is what God sees my sin as. This isn't something I want. Um, and, And that's kind of the whole point to this is you you don't suffer loss because you don't want to have this sin anymore. You don't want the effects of this sin anymore. Um, You hate this sin the same way God does. And you have to grow in your understanding of how God hates that sin so that you can truly be sorrowful for it. Number four, godly sorrow brings good. This is a sorrow you want, a sorrow you can rejoice over, a sorrow you only gain from and never lose from, a sorrow you'll never regret. That is the sorrow you experience in genuine repentance. The world has its own sorrow and is the opposite of good sorrow. The world's sorrow leads to death. That was the end of verse 10 right there. And so, what is the, the difference? Um, the world's sorrow is sorry it got caught. The world's sorrow doesn't want to lose its pet sin. Um, there's no strain of joy within the world's sorrow. There's no sweetness to the world's sorrow. There's only regret. 
I think that's one of the things that distinguishes Christians from non-believers. Like, non-believing good people don't feel sorry when they do things bad. They don't have true regret over their sin. They just want to be good. And so they're trying to do this stuff, and they're fighting against it. Um, I was listening to a podcast of a non-believer who's a recovering drug addict. It's actually interesting. I have this in my notes from last year when I taught this lesson. Um, he was clean and sober for years, but when you hear him talk about drugs, it's crazy. Like, he talks about it and reminisces and talk, tries to talk other people on his podcast into doing drugs. Like, you'll love it. It's, it's not for me, but you'll love it. Drugs are awesome. Um, that's, that's uh, I'm like, man, that's the story of an unrepentant person who is trying to stay clean because he knows it's bad for him. Um, the irony of that story is in the last year, he's relapsed. Shocking. Um, and, and, and yet that's the world's view of their sin. They still love it. They just know it's not right. Um, we have to get to a point where we hate our sin. So what does the worldly sorrow look like? There's, there's some examples in Scripture. Think of Cain. He was grumbling at if the consequence was too hard for him to carry. Uh, he wouldn't repent of his hatred and murder. Think of King Saul and his wounded pride. He no longer had the favor of God, but he wouldn't turn from his spiritual defection. Think of the sorrow of King Ahab, despondent, self-pity, when he couldn't get Naboth's vineyard, but he wouldn't repent of his coveting. And as we said earlier, think of Judas. Overwhelmed by his betrayal of the son, he wept bitterly, but he wouldn't return to Christ and instead killed himself. There are very real, very both, you know, we can probably talk about examples we interact with on a regular basis of sadness over sin that isn't godly sorrow. Um, godly sorrow brings joy. And that's important to know. Um, godly sorrow is not sorry you got caught, is not sorry about the consequences of your sin, but is sorry about what your sin does to your relationship to a holy God. Um, and, and you have an opportunity to, re to, to restore that relationship um, through repentance. And so the fifth and final way godly sorrow acts for the repentant sinner is godly sorrow produces repentance humility, and unity. When true repentance comes, you will know, because you will have a sorrowful heart that is also joyful, because it's no longer heading in a sinful direction. A sorrow that won't regret turning from your sin, that won't leave you feeling like you've lost anything, but you've only gained. A sorrow that gives you evidence of the salvation you've been enjoying. Um, a sorrow, as verse 10 says, that is unto, uh, what does it actually say? A sorrow that is um, according to the will of God. With godly sorrow, you'll be humbled. You'll be sorry your sin tarnished your Savior's good, holy name and reputation. You'll be sorry your Savior suffered greatly in your plan Suffered greatly in your, um, suffered greatly on the cross, 
for you, and it cost him greatly. You'll be sorrow. Your fellowship with him was obstructed and hindered by your sin. Have you experienced that? When you're continuing in sin, it's harder to open God's word. It's harder to pray. Your time in God's word becomes like, well, I'm going to read because I have to. But it's not worshipful because you've got this sin that is an impediment to your worship of him. Godly sorrow recognizes that, and you long for your relationship with your Savior more than you long for that sin. With godly sorrow, you'll restore broken relationships. There's really no such thing as, uh, what's the phrase, Uh, um, a sin that doesn't affect anyone else, a hidden sin that's just for me. That doesn't really exist. All sin destroys relationships. All sin hurts others and hinders your unity and fellowship with them. With godly sorrow, um, it suffers no loss when you turn from it. It has no regrets, and it points to genuine salvation. So Christian, when you say, I'm sorry, you should be thinking of all of these things. Um, it should not be a platitude to change the dynamic of the interaction. I know I'm, I'm susceptible to this. I hope Jenna doesn't listen to this tape um, or recording, but here we go. Um, there are times when I'm fighting with my wife, and I know that I can get out of this if I just apologize. I might not be sorry about whatever it is that went wrong, but I know the way to transition this conversation is to apologize. Um, that's not godly sorrow. That's not helpful. That's just manipulation. Um, and so the solution is to really be sorry, is to even recognize this isn't like, you know what, whatever we're fighting about, I need to take a break and go pray about this because I need to get to a point where I have sorrow under repentance and I'm not there. Um, that, that's the solution. You have to get to a point where, where you see your sin the way God sees it. And so when you say you're sorry, this is what you should be saying. I feel godly sorrow for how my sin has damaged my relationship with you. I sinned against you, and that sin put my Savior on the cross. I am sorry that as a redeemed believer in Christ, I still treasure myself and the things of this world more than my Savior. And I want to run from the world and towards my Savior. And so I'm sorry. That's what godly sorrow is. That's why it's eight times in three or four verses. Um, It is so important for us to understand godly sorrow, for us to run towards godly sorrow, and for us to run away from our sin. Um, And so that's my first of three lessons today. Um, So let me grab a drink of water and then we'll get into it. So godly sorrow is the first of eight marks of godly repentance. The other seven only have six points each. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) So number two of eight marks. And these really, the rest of these really come out of verse 11. So let's just look at verse 11 one more time. Um, This is one of Paul's um, 
famous lists. He says, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, and what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. And so we're just going to look at those. So number two is what earnestness. A persistent, earnestness is defined as a persistent striving to correct a pattern of sin. It's kind of an umbrella idea over the rest. It casts its flavor, its shade over the rest. It's that sprinting from sin towards holiness. It's eager, it's active. You can't passively turn from sin. You have to earnestly turn from sin. The Corinthians had been unable to move. They couldn't be moved to, to, to defend Paul. They were unconcerned to do so. They believed lies about him. They were inactive and not eager. But now they are actively eager towards him. They are repentant, eager and active to straighten this all out, earnest to resolve their offense, earnest for what is right. Whatever had them hesitant towards Paul is gone now. It's not a burst or a flash in the pan either. It's a sustained activity to move in the direction they are now pointed towards. Earnestness reveals repentance. Number three, vindication. Vindication is defined as a defense consistently consisting primarily of the absence of the sin pattern. The idea of clearing themselves of the guilt of their lack of defense of Paul, their defection. They wanted to remove the stigma of their guilt and blame. Like a son who is eager to clear himself before his dad, not by lying, defending, or denying what they did, but by going humbly through confession, acknowledging their wrongdoing. The only way to vindicate yourself when you are guilty is through acknowledging your guilt and demonstrating you are now just the opposite. I'm going to read that again. The only way to vindicate yourself when you are guilty is through acknowledging your own guilt and demonstrating you are now just the opposite. And vindication reveals repentance. Number four, indignation. This is a, a defined as a feeling of anger over your decision to sin. It's a really strong word. Like outraged. Outraged over their own sin against Paul. They didn't come in defense of him. And they are they're in shock about it. They're upset about it. They hate what they once loved. Think about the last time you sinned. Were you outraged at yourself for doing that? Were you outraged at your sin? Or were you comfortable just keeping it there? Indignation has, is having a disdain for what they have done. So repentance is an evident of, evidence of a radical change of mind towards your sin. If you're willing to sin, you are not outraged about it. Um, repentance has a radical outrage towards your sin. Uh, and so to get to repentance, you have to, like I said earlier, understand your sin the way God sees it, so you hate it the way God hates it. Um, the fifth mark of godly repentance 
is fear. It's a healthy reverence for the one who is most offended by our sin. Uh Let's start with the fear of God. A worshipful fear of God arises out of a sense of his majestic holiness and the purity of his selfless love for you. He is so holy that you fear wronging him. He is so loving that you fear betraying his love. You are sobered into holiness. Where you had once been casual or unconcerned in your sin, you had no sight of God. You didn't look at God as God looks. You didn't look at your sin as God looks at your sin. You looked at your sin with delight. But if you have a reverent fear for him, you see the grotesque evil you are trifling with. It was always this way. It was always evil. But now the scales have fallen off of your eyes and you can see God in your sin as you should. Um, it's a fear that is worshipful. Uh, you don't run from God, but to God. It's a fear that does not make you run away from your offended, offended brother, but towards your offended brother to reconcile. And fear reveals repentance. I feel like there's a parenting lesson in there, too, for us dads and how we interact with our kids um, and how we help them see a fear of their own sinfulness um, and a fear of us, but not in the way that we want them to fear us, like, or fear of us. I think that's right. Um, and, but we need to have that perspective with God. We need to see God as so holy that we don't want to break our his break our relationship with him. Um, And so fear is definitely a mark of repentance. Number six, what longing? Longing is a mark. It's a strong desire to restore the relationship that has been harmed because of sin. It's a strong desire to restore the relationship that has been hard because of sin. Positively drawn toward Paul, they desired Paul and desired reconciling with him. They yearned to see him. Um, They had a strong, positive affection for him. They no longer wanted distance between them. When I think about this passage, I kind of think about how that event must have played out when Paul went and confronted the false teachers and how the church at Corinth must have been interacting with him. Um, I feel like this relationship, this bond that they had for 18 months, would have been severely broken. I mean, can you imagine the guy that led you to the Lord, you standing against him in the doctrine of what led you to the Lord in the first place? Um, and then he confronts it and you realize, oh, I was, I was wrong all along. Um, it, it would take some humility, which we get to in a minute, to even get back there to where you go, oh, I, I was wrong all along and now I need to go to him and reconcile. Um, and yet, their desire for him was strong, and that's why they were longing to, to reconcile that relationship. Um, when we sin, we harm a relationship somewhere. Um, it takes some humility to even go to the person that we harmed and, and acknowledge our own sin verbally um, and stepping into that life and, and doing it. But if you don't do that, you're not really longing for the restored relationship that... Um, sin broke 
because you got to jump over some of those hurdles to get there. Um, which leads to number seven, uh, what zeal? Um, in this context, zeal is a passion that's motivated by both love and hate. Um, it goes beyond longing. They were stirred up into an even greater fervor for Paul to give evidence of their repentance. It was an intense desire. They were zealous to comply with anything more that could put their relationship with Paul on more solid ground. So they are not just turned from their sin. They are not just turned towards um, reconciliation, but they're longing for reconciliation. And they're ze- they are zealous for it. Um, and the zeal, zeal reveals repentance. And the, the, um, the hatred is looking the, is the other way, right? Like, you long to go this way, and you are zealous to run away from the sin that you were facing. Um, man, when I think about, you know, kind of the, the um, contentment example I said at the beginning, um, early in my life, when contentment was really a problem, and, I mean, I say besetting sin, like I had a paper route when I was 12, and I have something like 10,000 baseball cards in my um, closet still because I just couldn't buy, I couldn't spend enough money. Like, I, it was constantly, like, when it wasn't baseball cards anymore, it was CDs. When it wasn't CDs anymore, it became something else. I think I've had 20-something cars over the course of my life. Like, it's ridiculous. The things that are, this is going to be the next thing that is going to satisfy this contentment. Um, I never saw, or for a long time, never really saw that it was even a problem. Um, and when I did, it was like, I need to run from this. Like, I need to, to hate wanting more things. Like, when you pull up a web browser and start shopping, like, wait a minute, this is just showing that I'm not happy with what God has for me right now. I need to hate that. Um, and so th- there's, there's a strong zeal to just be angry with the thing that is behind you. And that's, that's godly anger. Um, because you don't want sin in your life anymore. Um, so anyway, number eight, the last one, avenging of wrong. Um, this is defined as applying the consequence that promotes holiness of life. They wanted to avenge what they had done wrong. That's when you know you're repentant. When you're done defending yourself, you're done trying to protect yourself, you're done pitying yourself, and rather you're avenging the wrong you've done. They were ready for justice, ready to bring justice down, even if it was on their own heads. Avenging the wrong reveals repentance. These marks of repentance are helpful. Um, And today, the third lesson is some encouragement. Um, Biblical repentance is different than worldly change. Um, We we don't just have different tools in our tool belt for change, but the Lord of the universe has given us provisions to help us in our repentance. And so I want to look at five different things that God's given us to be able to help us become a faithful repenter. Five provisions from God for the faithful repenter.
it's important to know, I mean, I think we can feel a burden of sin, a burden under our sin. Um, you know, when we talk about God's transformation of man, we're kind of in that grayish yellow state right now. Um, and, and as we grow in our love for God, it's kind of this like delayed reaction. Like we grow in our love for God, and so we want to um, turn from our sin more, and we start feeling the burden of our sin more, and we need to trust that God is faithful to help us um, move away from that. And so, so some of that are things He's given us, things we need to cling to, to be able to just trust that I know I'm not the man I want to be. Um, but I'm moving in the right direction, and if I shepherd my heart in these ways, um, God will help me move to be the man I want to be. Um, and then God unpeels another onion layer, and we find out that, oh, the man I wanted to be wasn't the man I want to be, and now I want to be this man. <laughs> and, and it just keeps um, growing in our desire to be holy. Um, and so let's look at the five provisions from God for a faithful repenter. Um, number one, comfort and encouragement. Um, verse, chapter 7, verse 6. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Being repentant and watching others repent is a huge encouragement. Um, that's honestly one of my favorite parts of small group, is when other people share how they've been battling sin and have seen growth in their lives. Um, it's such an encouragement. It's one of the, my favorite parts of counseling is just watching God work in other people's lives um, and knowing that God can do is can and is doing that same work in me. Um, and so it's, it's such a sweet time. It's such a comforting time. It's a testimony that we need to be interacting with others more. Um, if these are the times where we get comfort and encouragement, then it's just another reason that we need to be part of a body of believers and, and interacting with them more so that we can be encouraged by their repentance. They can be encouraged by ours. Um, number two, another provision is innocence. Verse 11, um, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. What does that mean? Um, they had only been guilty before. So how can they be innocent of the matter now? That means a fresh start has come. The guilt is gone, and they're walking now in their relationship with Paul in innocence as far as Paul is concerned. Repentance does this. It brings a new day of relational innocence. This says so much about the forgiving kind of man Paul was. Paul wasn't unnecessarily, ruthlessly holding their guilt against them, not exact, extracting a pound of flesh. He isn't mercil mercilessly sifting them, analyzing their deficiencies. He's living by the principle that judgment will be merciless to those who show no mercy, and mercy triumphs over justice, over judgment. Um, Paul didn't hold the sentence of guilt over them any longer than is necessary, and now he's waving his hand over them, declaring them innocent in their relationship. That's a lesson to us in forgiveness um, when we're sinned against. Um, this doesn't mean that there's no correction yet to come. There's quite a bit of correction in this letter. 
Um, but two things can be true at the same time. Paul believes they are repentant and in a new day, new day of innocence with him, and there's correction that's needed. Um, I talk about this in, in, with respect to parenting. I think it's one of the most, the biggest graces God has for us while we walk this earth is to not reveal to us all of our sinfulness all at once. Um, he un, uh, cuts off the layers of the onion of our sinfulness. Um, helps us feel the victory of that, of that repentance. And then shows us a little bit more. Um, if we felt the burden of our sin all at once, it would be debilitating. Um, God knows just the right amount of sin to show us so that we can desire holiness and grow. Um, and it's super sweet. There's a parenting lesson in there too. But this isn't a lesson on parenting, so I'll just move on. Um, sin does damage, though. Paul was gracious with the church at Corinth, but we cannot expect all of the people that we sinned against to act this way. We repent, we try to restore, and we trust God with those that have a harder time trusting us again. Um, the innocence that's talked about here is not a lack of consequence for our sin. And we have to realize that, and we have to trust God with that. So, as a believer in Christ, um, how can we bear this kind of fruit in keeping with repentance? There's three more um, provisions that I have that God gave us from other passages within Scripture. Um, the next one is a promised victory, and that's in Romans 6. Let's turn there. There's a few chapters in my Bible that the Bible just turns there almost automatically. Romans 6 happens to be one of those. Um, maybe it's because 10 years ago, Scott and Smith, or 15 years ago now, did a series on Romans 6, and so my Bible just opened up there every week for like six months. But um, it's definitely one. It's a good series. I encourage you to find it on the website. It predates the Romans, like the study of Romans. Um, where it was just a long time in Romans 6, and it was really helpful. Um, so anyway, number three, promised victory. Let's read verses 4 through 7 of chapter 6. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we might too walk in newness of life. For if we become reunited with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Christ's victory over death and sin enables your victory over sin. Verse 4 says we have the ability to walk in newness of right life. And 6 and 7 says we are freed from sin's rule. That is so sweet. Um, we have the ability to actually turn from our sin. Um, the podcaster I miss, 
mentioned earlier, does not. And he proved that in the last year. Um, the fourth provision is a couple of pages to the right, um, or swipes, I guess. Um, chapter 8, let's look at verses 12 through 14. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body. You will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. By his power, only you can put to death the deeds of the body, and repentance comes through that. Cry out to him for help for power, for comfort, and you'll have success in your fight against sin. He's given you the power to do it through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And repentance comes no other way. The last one is, is God's word. God's word is a provision he's given us to be able to compete, combat repentance. Um, I'm going to read a few verses from there, we don't have to turn there. First uh, Thessalonians 2:13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when we received, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is—the word of God, which also performs its works work in those who believe. God's word performs its work in you who believe. First Peter 2:2. 2, 2, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow with respect to salvation. And then Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. Memorize scripture. I talked earlier about doing a study on scripture, in scripture on what your sin looks like to God. Um, that's a helpful tool in repentance. Um, there's passages, depending on the sin, that are so helpful to memorize as you have to fight this sin. Um, God's word gives you the power to beat the sin, but you need to have it on your heart. Um, it can't be something... You do, you know, you come on Sunday and you listen to God's word taught and that's the end of it. Um, you're not going to grow. You, you need to be in God's word daily. You need to have God's word written um, wherever you can see it. I know in our house, at some point, um, Jenna got into calligraphy. And so she puts verses randomly throughout our house, whether it's above the sink, um, whether it's above the toilet. Um, for us to just keep in mind things. And she usually um, has the verses as verses we should be memorizing because of things that are the temperature the, the, in our home that she recognizes the things we as a household should be working on. It's a, it's a sweet tool that she's used in, this, in our home to just help us focus. And, you know, if the kids are bickering, there's, there's verses about how do, you, how do you avoid that that's just in front of us all the time. Um, I encourage you to do that. Have God's word. Like the time you read God's word doesn't just have to be the time you open your Bible. Um, having it throughout your home 
is really helpful. And I feel like it says that somewhere, maybe in Deuteronomy 6 or something. I don't know. Um, so um, that's it. That's the lesson on repentance.